Return to the Word is made possible by faithful supporters like you. Find out more at returntotheword.com. Welcome to another edition of Return to the Word Radio with Bible teacher Mark Fontecchio. Advancing the message of God's amazing grace through the teaching of God's Word. And now with today's message, here is our teacher. An old story tells of a college student taking one of those tough final exams in a large lecture hall and he has one of those professors that nobody likes. This professor was one of those guys, Ben, standing at the front of the class yelling out how much time was left before the end of the test. Well, this this professor was a real charmer and he walked around making sure no one was cheating. And the students were told when they finished to stack up their exams and put them up at the front of the podium, just make a big old pile of them at the front. But one student needed a passing grade in this class on this exam in order to graduate. And he didn't do well with a, a professor sitting up there reminding him how much time was left, how much time was ticking by on this exam. So when the professor told the class that the time was up and it was time to hand in their paperwork, he didn't even flinch. He didn't even flinch as all the other students one by one got up and started putting their pencils down and then they walked up and put their papers on the front of the podium and made a big old pile. This student, he just kept writing. He just kept working. And the professor noticed this and he reminded the class again that time was up. It was time to turn in your work, but it didn't faze him. This student, he just kept working, just kept writing. The professor just kept watching him. And after some time, when the student finally came forward to turn in his test, when he came forward to put his test in the pile with all the others, the professor asked the student, he said, what do you think you are doing? And he said, turning in my exam was his answer. But the professor told him, I'm sorry, but it's late. You failed. It's not in on time. And the student just looked up at him and asked, do you know who I am? Well, the professor didn't know what to make by this. He looked a little confused, so the student rephrased the question, and he said, do you know what my name is? No, came the answer from the professor. And so the student just looked him dead in the eye, and he said, I didn't think so. And as he said it, the student picked up halfway through the pile of exams and slid his right in the middle of the stack, letting the pile of tests bury his with all the rest and walked out of the lecture hall. Nicely done. Or even better yet was the young man that went off to one of those expensive universities, Hannah, and his parents were paying the bill, but they barely were keeping their heads above water as they were paying the bills. And one day his mother received an email from him that read, Dear Mom, I'm writing to inform you that I have flunked all of my courses. I had an accident and totally wrecked my car. Sounds like me in college, Mom. And I have been suspended for the next semester because of misconduct. I am coming home, prepare Dad. And his mother wrote a one-line email back to him that just said this, Dear son, dad is prepared. Prepare yourself. (laughs) See, when you think of the discipline of God, let me ask you this, is this what you think about? Is this what you think about? An angry father or a hateful 
professor just waiting to fail you? Do you feel like God is testing you in your life? What does that look like when you think about it in your mind? Do you think that God hates you? Some Christians actually think this. Now, we will be graded when we stand before him. There's no doubt about that. And there will be reward and there will be loss of rewards for Christians. And God most certainly is prepared to deal with his children when they sin. But God is never abusive. Hear me on that. God is never abusive. God is not standing over you hoping that you'll mess up so he can just bonk you on the side of the head. Even when he disciplines us, we must remember that God does it all out of his love for us. Because of his love, he must correct us. God loves us the way we are, but it's been rightly said he loves us too much to leave us the way we are. His purpose is to bring us to maturity in Jesus Christ, to make us conformed to Christ. And this is what Hebrews is going to tell us this morning when we get to verse 10, that God wants us to be partakers of his holiness. You see, when our actions, when our behavior fails to align with our true identity in Jesus Christ, who he's already made us to be, God disciplines us for our own good. He's willing to bring it into our lives, whatever's necessary to accomplish that purpose. So let's look at how the author begins in verse 5 of Hebrews chapter 12. He says, And you have forgotten the exhortation which speaks to you as to sons. My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you are rebuked by him. For whom the Lord loves, he what? Chastens and scourges every son whom he receives. If you endure chastening, God deals with you as with sons. Well, the author is actually telling us to be thankful for the agony of discipline. Value the pain, he's saying, because it's a sign that God loves you. Chastening, some of the translations correctly refer to it as discipline. The Greek actually means child training is what it's reading here. It includes everything parents do to equip their children for life. It includes instruction, correction, teaching, because pain is one of the things that God actually uses in your life to train up his children. Suffering is part of what God uses to ready his people to handle their inheritance in the kingdom of God. The author is pulling this from Proverbs chapter 3, a quotation from the words of King Solomon, showing us that the discipline from God should tell us that the love of God is absolutely upon us. Even the persecution that these Hebrew Christians were facing, God was using it to chasten his people because the author is talking to the children of the kingdom of God. Now, there are two commands here for the believer in Christ. One, the first one is do not despise the chastening of the Lord. Don't learn to hate it. And don't think it's something that God's not going to bring into your life because God can. And guess what, Christians? He will. Because he loves you and his purpose is to instruct you in his righteousness. Don't ignore what God is trying to do in your life. And the second command is found in the latter part of verse five, nor be discouraged when you are rebuked by him. See, I want you to follow the line of thinking with me in the text. If a believer can be discouraged when they're being rebuked by the Lord, then the assumption that the author is making is that believers can know when God is rebuking them. Do you see my point? 
A rebuke by God happens when God uses the Spirit of God and His Word to bring about an inner consciousness of sin and guilt. Meaning this, God lets you know when you're in trouble. God lets you know. But when God rebukes us, it doesn't mean that He's rejecting His people. God isn't done with you just because you sinned. So if you're being rebuked by God, the author's saying, don't be discouraged. Don't turn back in your Christian faith. You know, if you go off and rob a bank, you still have to do your time, don't you? And if you rob God and don't give back to the Lord, I believe that the Bible teaches your finances will eventually suffer. If you don't work, you're going to have a hard time providing for your family. If you neglect the word of God, your understanding of God and his purpose for your life, it's going to suffer. If you lie about someone, that trust has been broken. That's the consequence of your sin. You see, on and on we could go to every single area of life. Don't be discouraged because when you turn back to God, he stands there ready to forgive you. But be ready, be ready to embrace the consequences of your own sinful actions. And instead of being discouraged about it, rejoice. Rejoice over the fact that God loves you enough to restore that relationship with you by simple confession. Rejoice at the opportunity to grow. Recognize God's love because he scourges every son whom he receives. But here is where we need to be careful. You see, if you're a child of God, if by faith you belong to Jesus Christ, if he is your savior, redeemed by the blood of the cross, you will, hear me, never be punished by God. Do you hear the difference? Don't tell me that God is punishing you because I'm going to assume that you're telling me that you're an unbeliever. Punishment is retribution for evil that has been done. God never punishes his people because all the punishment for God's people was taken care of by Jesus Christ at the cross. No child of God should ever fear the punishment of God. Chastening or discipline, absolutely yes, because this is all about training us up as his children. It's meant to instruct us. It's meant to teach us to walk in the ways of God. Suppose, Walter, you're taking your dog on a walk and he has his leash on and you walk past a post. Now, as you walk past a post or a tree, you know what happens besides the dog watering the post. He tries to do what? He always inevitably will go around the wrong side of that post or that tree and get himself all wrapped around. And he gets himself all caught up. And your dog does not have the capability, the the mental thinking, to be able to unwrap himself from this post. So you have to do what? You have to start pulling him back. And you're not trying to hurt the dog. You're pulling back because you want him to actually be able to go forward on this walk. Your dog wants exactly the same thing as you. He wants to be able to go forward. If he's a well-trained dog, he receives the correction. He yields to you tugging on him backwards as a matter of duty to his master, even though it seems to him that he's going against his own will. But only by yielding to his master will he ever be able to go forward and get where he actually wants to go. Now, a lesser trained dog may get wrapped up around that post and fight the owner the entire way. The more the dog fights the owner, the less likely that he can ever move forward and the harder that the owner has to tug and pull to get him on the right path. 
Because the dog believes the lie that the only way forward, the only way to get what he wants is to push ahead. In fact, if this dog doesn't give in to the master, or if this dog just keeps doing it again on the next post and the next tree and the next post, the owner may just get to the point where he says, enough is enough. I'm just going to take my dog home and no longer go for this walk. And don't think for a second, Christians, that God won't take you home. God begins his discipline upon the believer with a gentle tug. I really believe that. A gentle tug. But if we resist, he starts to pull stronger and harder, stronger and harder. And either we give in and see that we need to follow his lead, or we start fighting him. And we become bullheaded. We become prideful. We become entangled with the world. And if the child of God continues to fight God, guess what happens? He just may take you home. He may remove you from this life here on earth and transfer you into glory where you will fight him no more because your sin nature will be gone. So what do you do when you fall into sin? You seek his forgiveness. You seek his redirection in life. And you may go the wrong way again. And guess what? God will forgive you once again. But recognize that there's no hope of getting where you want to go except by going the direction that God wants you to go. God cares about us enough to help us mature. And just like a loving father, he wants to stay away from the things that are going to hurt us in life and move us along to the path toward maturity. Now, sometimes that involves discipline in our lives, but always know that his chastening hand is controlled by a loving heart. Verse 7 again with verse 8 in your text. If you endure chastening, God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom a father does not chasten? But if you are without chastening of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate and not sons. Just a matter of note here. Verse 7, it should be better translated. It is for discipline that you endure. It should be that way. The text should not read, if you endure. The manuscripts all line up and say, it is for discipline that you endure. You see, these Hebrew believers were being disciplined by God, but the analogy that the author uses of a father disciplining his son is lost on the church of Jesus Christ today because few men, let me say it this way, few fathers are willing to take responsibility for the discipline of their children. Because men, guess what? It starts with you. It's actually biblically your responsibility. Now, no one's talking about cruelty, but being a man, according to the Bible, means taking some responsibility. Being a father means showing love by correcting your children. Don't expect other people to foot the bill because you won't discipline your children. Teach them to respect people. Teach them manners. Teach them to sit through a church service. That seems to be a lost art today. It's one hour a week. Teach them to honor God. Teach them to honor people. Open up the word of God with your children. And if you have little ones, you shouldn't have to spank your children all the time. I don't think we've ever spanked our children more than a handful of times in their entire lives. Because you know what? No means no the first time. And those threats, I'm going to spank you, I'm going to spank you, just either do it or don't even say it. Hold back the honest spanking for the times when they're defiant. Not everything deserves a spanking and never, ever do it out of anger. Timeouts are free. Hand them out whenever you need to. Hand them out all the time, but then talk to them afterwards. Your goal is never to punish them. Your goal is to teach them, to train them. 
See, if you discipline your child, but you don't talk to them about it afterwards, you're just asking for trouble, aren't you? Train them, teach them. Parents, learn from how God does it. God disciplines his children and he's involved in their lives. He cares, he corrects, he trains. God doesn't just sit and scream at us and yell at us. He doesn't do that. Help your kids grow. Correct them with the same loving purpose and self-restraint that God has for us. Hebrew fathers, you know, were responsible for the training, the education, and the discipline of their children. And that's why the text asks this rhetorical question here, whoever heard of a father not disciplining his children? Now, most of us know Proverbs 13, 24, he who spares his rod hates his son, but he who loves him, what? Disciplines him promptly. Proverbs actually explains to us that to fail to discipline a child is to show them hate. You see, if a child is just left to himself, what happens? They become disrespectful. They become destructive, mean, selfish. They have no self-control. Just look at the world today out there and you will see that. You see, a child who does not learn to submit to authority will never become a useful, mature adult. It just won't happen. And that is exactly, friends, what would happen to us if God was not working in our lives to bring about our growth. We wouldn't be functional for the kingdom of God. We wouldn't be mature in our faith. Let me be very clear on this text in Hebrews. I don't believe the point of these verses was to suggest that the author was doubting the faith of these Hebrew Christians. I don't think that's what's going on. But instead, I think the design here was to actually move them on to maturity, to look at the eternal purpose of what God was doing in their lives, that any discipline that they endured was because God had a purpose. God was trying to train them. And sometimes, guys, we need the tough lessons. But we have to understand that in the Bible days, even back then, you see a Roman father, he had legitimate children and illegitimate children. He had children who he would have with his wife and children from concubines and slaves. Some of you know that one classical writer from that time, he wrote this. He said, we keep prostitutes for the pleasure, but we keep mistresses for the day-to-day -day needs of the body. We keep wives, here's the sad thing, this is what they said, for the begetting of children and for the faithful guardianship of our homes. You see, the only children that Roman father cared about were those that he had through his wife. These were the ones he disciplined and trained to take over the family fortune one day. The rest of his children, he just simply ignored. He didn't care about how they actually turned out, so he left them without discipline. He didn't bother to train them up at all. And the point of this text is to say, God trains his people to reign with his son, Jesus Christ. The discipline of God, it actually should give us assurance. It should build our faith. It should give us assurance that God has a purpose for us greater than this life. God has a plan for us. So don't turn your back on him because you belong to God. And his purpose for the training is to actually bring us closer. He's not trying to drive us away. God wants to restore that relationship with you. God wants to train you because he cares for you. His discipline in your life means he's getting you ready to handle your inheritance in glory. You know, I'm convinced our brothers and sisters in Asia seem to understand this better than we do here in the West. 
Ajith Fernando is a Christian leader from Sri Lanka, and he ministers to the urban poor. Listen to what he wrote about the West. He spent a lot of time in our country, and he's also gone back there to serve most of his life. Listen to what he wrote about our Western culture in the church. He said, the church in each culture has its own special challenges. Theological blind spots that hinder Christians from growing to full maturity in Christ. I think one of the most serious theological blind spots in the Western church is the defective understanding of suffering. He goes on. There seems to be a lot of reflection on how to avoid suffering and on what to do when we actually hurt. We have a lot of teaching about escape from suffering and therapy for suffering, but there's inadequate teaching about the theology of suffering. The good life, comfort, convenience, and a painless life have become necessities that basic people view as rights. If they do not have these, they think that something, something's gone wrong. And one of the results of this attitude is a severe restriction of spiritual growth, for God intends us to grow through the trials. He's absolutely right, isn't he? You see, God wants us to grow, and that's why he loves us enough to discipline us. And in the midst of your pain, believer in Jesus Christ, don't ever doubt his love for you. Learn to appreciate the evidence of love in discipline. Learn to embrace the pain. Use that agony to draw closer to Jesus Christ. All right, pick up your text starting in verse 9. He goes on to say, Furthermore, we have had human fathers who corrected us and we paid them respect. Shall we not much more readily be in subjection to the Father of spirits and what? Live. For they indeed for a few days chastened us as seemed best to them, but he for our profit that we may be partakers of his holiness. Now our earthly fathers, they didn't always do it right. Every parent makes mistakes. I love watching new parents because they always think they're going to do it better than their parents. And then they make the same mistakes. Sometimes their discipline of our parents, it was wrong and it made us bitter, but we respected it. We respected their discipline. Now, our Heavenly Father, look at this truth. Our Heavenly Father always does it right. His discipline is always intended to make us better because His discipline is always intended to make us holy like Himself. You see, we live today in the West in a culture of victims where we have become experts at blaming others instead of looking at it from God's point of view. Here is what I mean by that. We need to look at things as students and not victims. You see, a victim says, why did this happen to me? But a student says, I don't care why it happened. I want to learn what God is trying to teach me. You see, a victim feels sorry for himself, that he has no time to help others. A student focuses on helping others so that he has no time to feel sorry for himself. A victim begs God to remove the problems of life so that they might be happy. But a student, a student of God has learned through the problems of life that God alone is the true source of all our happiness. You see, if you have a victim mindset, you didn't get that from the Bible. I can guarantee you that. The Bible tells us to submit to the teaching of our Father in heaven. No matter how difficult the lesson, God always has our future in mind. He's called out a people to himself, and now he's working in our lives. Why? To make us more and more each day like him. Praise God. God's motivation, it's not anger. It's not anger with his children. It's training. 
And the more we submit to him, the more we take on his righteousness and the more of his peace we actually have in our lives. And the more we live in the fullness of life to the glory of God. Now, this is the abundant life in Christ. It is the best life that we could live in the biblical sense, seeking to learn what he wants to teach us. Believe God to be the loving parent and live. Evangelist D.L. Moody, I've talked about him often, and that's what happens when you go to Moody Bible College. He once told about a wealthy couple whose only child died as a baby, and they were obviously brokenhearted, obviously devastated by this. And trying to fill a void that was left in their lives, they took a trip to the Holy Land. And there they saw a shepherd trying to persuade some sheep to cross this stream. But the running water, it was moving fast and it scared the sheep. It frightened them and they held back. And this shepherd, he stooped down and he took a lamb and he carried it over across the river. And the mother watched her young lamb being taken away, and suddenly she lost all the fear of this stream. It instantly was gone. She followed, and soon the whole flock was just on the other side about that quick. And this spoke enormously to the parents. They realized what God was doing in their lives. He was making heaven more real to them, more significant to them. They had never entertained the thoughts of heaven before, never really responding to God when he gently prodded them to live for him. But they realized the lesson that the chastening had been intended to accomplish. And so they returned home back to the States to spend their lives focused on living for the kingdom of God rather than here on earth. See, the point is, allow the discipline of God to drive us to our knees so that he can teach us the lesson that he has for us. God always gives us the right discipline in the right way at the right time, at the moment we need it most. His discipline, when received, trains the Christian in character, purifying the heart. But it's not always pleasant, is it? I mean, we never really enjoy the feeling of going through it. And that's what verse 11 tells us. It says, now no chastening seems to be joyful for the present, but painful. Nevertheless, afterward, it yields the fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Therefore, strengthen the hands which hang down and the feeble knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be dislocated, but rather be healed. Let's say it like this. No one likes to suffer, do you? No one likes to suffer. No one likes to go through the trials. I've been through my share. You're not alone. No one likes to be disciplined by God. It's not a comfortable feeling. The word for trained is interesting. It's where we get the word gymnasium from. God's discipline, think of it like this. God's discipline is like a gym. God's discipline is like a gym. It's a place where you practice your faith. It's the place where you're supposed to agonize and sweat. It's the place where you painfully exercise lazy spiritual muscles so you can get out there and play the game of life. God's discipline is exercise for life. So use that pain to get better at living by faith. That's what he's saying. Don't be afraid of the pain. Don't be afraid of the discipline needed to get stronger. Let the pain of the discipline prepare you to be what God has called you to. Don't resist it. Respect it. It's evidence of his love designed to prune us, clip a little bit away of the dead fruit and yield the peaceable fruit of righteousness in our lives. Designed to help us to live righteously in an unrighteous and unholy world. You know what it's designed to do? It's designed to end our rebellion, isn't it? 
It's designed to restore our fellowship with him. Because when God's discipline cleans up sin in our lives, it moves us further down the path of, towards his righteousness, living with God's peace and contentment under any circumstance. In our last two verses, the author is pulling from Isaiah 35, verse 3. I encourage you to go home and read that this afternoon. It's a beautiful text. And you can almost, in this text, you can almost hear the coach yelling at his track team. Put up your hands. Strengthen those knees. Stay in your lane. Because why? Well, the Hebrew Christians needed that. They weren't running their race so well. Their hands were slack. Their knees were getting weak. They weren't even staying in their lane. And the picture given is of a man frozen in fear with his hands sitting idle, doing nothing. And these Christians were at the point of exhaustion. Morale was low. They had shaky legs because they were living in fear of persecution. And rather than dropping down to defeat, they needed to stand firm in confident expectation of the return of Jesus Christ. But if they would follow the discipline of their coach, they could press on. They could run to victory renewing their strength so they can run the race by faith. The strength they needed comes from the power of the Word of God. It comes from the ministry of our great high priest. It comes from the power of the Holy Spirit. Make straight the path, he tells them, by removing anything that holds back their progress so that the lame among them, the very weakest Christians, might recover and walk with the Lord. Walk in a straight direction toward maturity in Christ, setting the path for those that come after you know, I've thought about this a lot, and I think that being miserable, being miserable in life is absolutely easy. It's very easy. All you have to do is get bitter about your problems and start thinking about yourself. You just got to claim to be the victim, get addicted to drugs, alcohol, whatever, or die complaining that life should have been better. But if you want to make progress in your faith, get adjusted to the reality that God knows exactly what he's doing in your life. How about that for a thought? And then live in light of this truth, because the message is agonize until you experience the limit of discipline. Train yourself as hard as you can possibly go for Christ. God wants to leave us stronger in our faith than we were before. Appreciate the evidence of love and discipline, accept the pain, and then advance. Go forward, Christian, for his glory. There are people here who may be going through a winter without end. Maybe you are one of them. You may have never heard of this expression, but it came to mean something back in the year 1816, when the common saying in the land was 1816 and froze to death. Now, if you think about winter itself, most of us survive winter because we have seen spring many, many times. In other words, I'm saying we're old. We know that winter ends eventually. We've seen it before, and we know that winter does end. But even with a history of many winters behind us, it can be difficult to go through a long winter. But I'd like you to consider for a moment the year 1816. It was called the year without summer. Here's why. First of all, it was a period of low sun activity. But something else happened. This is a picture of Mount Tambora in Indonesia. Now, right now, that was taken just this past week. Right now, it is at an elevation of about 9,000 feet. It used to be 14,000 feet. But on the 10th of April of 1815, it exploded with a force that was 100 times greater than that of Mount St. Helens. It is the largest volcanic eruption in recorded history of the world. This explosion was so 
utterly massive, it was heard 1,200 miles away. Soldiers got ready for battle thinking that they were going to be at war. At least 71,000 people were killed directly from this volcano, from the ash, the blast, with its cloud of gases, dust, and rock, and then, of course, the tsunamis came after. Now, the gas and the smoke reached 25 miles into the atmosphere. Fire-driven winds just uprooted trees. The flow of the debris down the slopes, it came down at more than 100 miles an hour. Ash actually rained down for weeks and houses that were hundreds and hundreds of miles away from the mountain actually collapsed underneath the debris. Water became contaminated. Crops and forests died. Many people just simply starved. The low sun activity and the gigantic ash cloud that filled the earth meant for much of the world that 1816 literally became the year without summer. Now, the major eruption eventually ended, but the sulfuric gas driven by the winds in the upper atmosphere, the ash and the dust, it circled the earth and then it blocked out the sunlight. In China, the cold weather killed trees. It killed rice. It killed even water buffalo. Floods ruined their surviving crops. In the northeastern United States, the locals said the weather actually just turned backwards. They didn't understand what was happening. With frost hitting New England all the way down to Virginia in midsummer. It snowed in Virginia in June, and people got outside and went sledding. And then again on July 4th, it was so cold there that the water froze up on them, and snow came again. Now, the crops around the world were absolutely devastated by this. Even for Thomas Jefferson, he had gone back to farming after completing his second term as president. I wish they would do that now. His corn, Thomas Jefferson, his corn was so devastated, he had to apply for a $1,000 loan. And this is actually one of the reasons why the heartland of the United States was settled, because the crops were failing in New England. And so thousands of farmers, thousands, about 15,000 farmers, left New England to go west of the Ohio River, hoping for a better environment to farm. This migration was part of how Indiana and Illinois became states. They didn't understand what was happening, why it was so cold, because there was no telegraph yet in that day. So word of this explosion in Indonesia actually had to travel by ships by word of mouth around the world. It took a long time to discover the reason that they were suffering. Do you hear my point? Eventually discovering that they were not alone in their misery. It rained for eight weeks straight in Ireland. Eight weeks straight, the potato crop failed and the famine came. Corn and wheat failed in Europe, all throughout the continent of Europe, as people were literally begging for food, all because of a stupid volcano thousands and thousands of miles away. Now, some of us here are experiencing winter in life, and if you aren't experiencing that right now in your life, you will. Maybe you haven't discovered yet why you're going through the struggles. Maybe you haven't gotten to the point of learning that you're not alone in the struggles. I'm not going to tell you that I fully understand everything about suffering, and I'm not going to tell you that we always will enjoy it. But at least this can be said. The struggles of life can be a catalyst for spiritual growth, which no other force can supply in our life.
because pain has the power to summon forth from us that which we find it most difficult to surrender. Uncompromising faith in God and unqualified love for God. So go through that winter in your life, but become a student instead of a victim. Look for the lessons that God is trying to teach you, knowing that his purpose never is to harm us. Run the race, embrace the goodness, the power, and the providence of God, even when things seem to be falling apart all over your life. You know, God is fully aware of what you're going through in your life. Don't assume that God doesn't see, and do not assume for a second God does not care. By faith, determine to finish the race that God has set before you. And instead of giving in to exhaustion, call on God to give you the grace to endure. Isaiah chapter 40, it reminds us this. It says, he gives power to the weak and to those who have no might, he increases strength. Those who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. You're never alone in the race. No matter what you're facing, the road has been beaten hard. Thousands of people have run that same path as you. Be encouraged by the saints and the word of God who have lived and walked by faith before and find your hope in the one who loves us enough to train us to live in his kingdom, to train us for the day when winter finally ends. Return to the Word Ministries is committed to teaching the full counsel of God's Word and the gospel of Jesus Christ. For more about our ministry, please visit returntotheword.com. Return to the Word is a faith ministry. This means we freely distribute the teaching of the Word of God over the air and online. We do this without charge. If you feel led to support the ministry with a donation to help cover these costs, you may do so on our website, returntotheword.com, or by mailing a donation to Return to the Word, P.O. Box 879-259, Wasilla, Alaska, 99687. Thanks for listening, and we pray that the Word of God will be a lamp unto your feet and a light unto your path. Join us next time for another edition of Return to the Word.